Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Mark Thompson, Assistant Director for Teaching and Learning Experiences at the Center for Innovation in Teaching and Learning at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He is also the Program Director for the Information Accessibility Design and Policy Program. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Mark Thompson. Mark is the Assistant Director for Teaching and Learning Experiences at the Center of Innovation in Teaching and Learning at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He is also the Program Director for the Information Accessibility Design and Policy Program. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Jeff. How's it good, going? Good. Um, I am so happy that you can join us today. Um, I've, um, I think you and I have worked together for I, a few years at this point, and um, it's yes. a, I must say that it's a rather unusual relationship because um, we, uh, at Digication, you know, we we are we are we we officially are a vendor of of your institution, uh, but we also have been very lucky to become a collaborator with you, especially your unit, um, and um, and we'll I'm sure talk a lot more about that, especially in terms of accessibility and the work that we did together. Uh, but before we go there, um, I just want the listeners um, to. Uh, hear a little bit about you. You've taught um, for um, a, a long time, and I, I read that it's over thirty years at this point, um, and uh, and have of course done a lot of teaching also online, um, and uh, and you are um, you have been a, an advocate for accessibility and um, and equal access, and and I think um, most recently, you know, you've got some new new work going on as well. So I'm going to let you talk about that. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and um, and uh, and your role at uh, UIUC? Sure. Uh, well, as you uh, uh, indicated, I wear multiple hats here um, and have worn multiple hats over the past few years. So. Uh, uh, recently, uh, within the Center for Innovation and in Teaching and Learning, I was leading the instructional design team, uh, but also playing a role uh, in accessibility on campus. Uh, since uh, 2014, uh, when the IEDP program was established, uh, I worked as uh, a designer for that program and as an instructor. Uh, IADP, enough, that's the Information Accessibility Design and Policy Program. That's correct, yes. And uh, it's interesting as I think back on that, uh, it was about that exact same time that the International Association of Accessibility Professionals was getting off the ground, uh, which is another confusing acronym for you, IAAP and IADP, <laughs> right? Um, in addition to that, uh, a, an organization that I uh, have been really honored to work with, Teach Access, was just getting off the ground that same year. So a lot of things were converging um, back then. 
you know, um, remind me later that we'll talk about teach access because uh, we, we um, I've come across them as well and as what a wonderful organization. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit of, you know, what makes you so interested in accessibility? Um, I mean, ever since I've known you, by the way, I know that you've had so much experience in so many things and instructional design itself is probably a whole other area that we can talk about. But accessibility has been, you know, the, the you know, for me, at least it's your identity. I always known you as the accessibility guru here. Well, I, I think with anybody, if you were to ask anybody who's working in the area of accessibility, uh, you would find that the starting point is always empathy. Uh, so having some empathy, in my case, uh, I met up with a blind uh, individual at a uh, at a technology uh, meeting on on our campus, uh, and wasn't even thinking about accessibility uh, very deeply, but just engaged in some conversation with him. We got started talking. Um, the next thing I know, uh, he and I and Norm Coombs were sketching out a Sloan C. Uh, workshop, a three-day Sloan C workshop on uh, accessibility, which then morphed into uh, a class for the Illinois Online Network. And so gradually things began to build as we began to collaborate more and more. So um, it's really interesting that in, in terms of the field of accessibility, that it's still, um, it's in the process of being formalized, but still we're far from it. I think a lot of it is mentorship and, and apprenticeship. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Tanya Heap, who's now the Director of Accessibility at uh, University of North Texas, who came to my office and said, look, I don't know anything about accessibility, but my, my grandmother is blind, and I would really like to learn more about accessibility and we started there. But again, empathy uh, is really the foundation. And uh, for that reason, we start off the first course in the Information Accessibility Design and Policy Program with understanding different types of disabilities and functional challenges that uh, individuals face, particularly with uh, information technology. That's that's. Uh that's really well said. I think that there are a lot of people that feel the same way. And I think that more people than I, I actually struggle to find people who don't have any connections with people that have some sort of special need. Um, I, I think my, uh, my, one of the things that I remember growing up as a, as a teenager, I was, um, in England and, uh, my um, family uh, had a uh, we had a family member who uh, had a you know had a stroke for half her body and um, and she's also um, mostly deaf and so uh, the 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 stroke caused her to have to be on a wheelchair um, and and uh, at that point in England is is in the nineties in the early nineties. You know, restaurants and places, public places, are not accessible at all. Um, and in fact, 
you know, if we are really, really diligent, we might call and ask before, but sometimes they don't give you the correct information. And so anywhere we ever want to go anywhere, you know, there's really only like, you know, couple of choices um, because these are places that we know are mostly like, they are like chain restaurants that we know for sure that they're accessible. And, um, and, and those are the only places we could go. And I still remember that and being, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, that's kind of where I st sort of have a personal experience with my, my first experience with, with it was, you know, like society doesn't, if, if the society doesn't pay attention to it, it doesn't treat, it doesn't naturally come with that empathy. We don't pay some extra attention to it. And, and if you, and, and that if the empathy doesn't exist, then folks that, um, have any kind of, you know, special needs or disabilities, you know, you just have a much harder time. Um, and it's, uh, it, it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Um, and speaking of, you know, this kind of history, I also want to acknowledge that your institution, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign has been a champion of accessibility for many, many decades. And this is way before the kind of digital, you know, like, app-based accessibility that we, we often talk about today. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we're going back to uh, after the Second World War, really, and uh, the veterans, uh, disabled veterans, um, and then looking in through the uh, civil rights period. But I think in particular, uh, at our institution, we're talking about Timothy Nugent, uh, who was a, a leader uh, in the area of universal design and uh, in athletics, and, uh, architecture on our campus? Uh, he led the way for for for, for decades here and uh, and at and at other institutions as well through his efforts. Um, I would mention uh, as an extension of that, you mentioned the digital uh, era. And I, I would tip my hat to John Gunderson as being, in some ways, the digital successor to Timothy Nugent. Uh, John has just recently retired, uh, but um, you know uh, there were a lot of people who, uh, under his mentorship, uh, were able to get involved uh, more deeply in things that were going on with accessibility in uh, the ARIA the accessible rich internet applications teams or uh, working in groups connected with the uh, W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, to establish uh, rule sets and uh, associated with uh, accessibility. So John has, has just been a mentor to us all, really, um, and a pioneer uh, in the area of digital accessibility. So yes, our, and I... I would add now that we're uh, we're at um, I think a very interesting nexus with teaching and learning, uh, specifically universal design for learning, which is not the same as universal design, uh, though there are connections, and it's not the same as accessible design. Um, but I think uh, when we're talking about uh, universal design for learning. Um, our unit is in the process. Uh, we just finished uh, interviewing finalists for a UDL specialist position here at uh, the Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning. And so we're, we're building a universal design for learning team here within CITL. 
um, that will reach out to our faculty on campus and uh, bring our sister campuses in Chicago and Springfield together to share uh, resources. Um, but I do think our faculty are really at a tipping point uh, where they're all pretty much familiar with the conceptual framework of UDL. Um, but now they're really poised to apply it. And that's why I think this team, uh, the timing for this team is, is really uh, appropriate. And so we're, we're really excited about the getting started. Um, we're reaching out to different colleges on our campus now, just getting started doing that. Uh, we're in the process at the very early stages of developing a, a UDL certificate program uh, within CITL for faculty. Um, I can mention also that I think with recent changes to the tenure and promotion process, uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion statement that is part of that um, is also another factor. I, I think people are very, uh, very interested now in inclusion, um, not just as part of the tenure and promotion process, but even more generally. And that's without saying anything about um, uh, tech companies. So I think that's a, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Education being part of that. Of well, course. we can. Um, I want to unpack so much of all of this, but I must say that um, one of the one of the most amazing collaborations that we've had at Digication of our twenty plus year you know history is with you. Um, it's this collaboration goes a lot beyond, you know, what we would typically do with with most schools. And um, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because it's it's unusual, but it's in such a beneficial way, um, certainly for us, and I hope for you as well. Um, and and uh, a few years ago, I will start by saying a few years ago, um, our colleague um, uh, Kate. Uh, uh, Labor, Labor, Kate Labor, who has just retired and was previously a Digication scholar as well. So we'll we'll put a link to her episode um, in in the show notes. Um, people want to hear about her her insights. Uh, and Kate uh, has brought us together. I think you know they said, "Hey," she said, "Look, there's a lot of accessibility um, resources and capacity at this this university." And I had said that I would love to meet them. I would love to work with them. And she 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 just brought us together, and we formed a a a partnership where we work together. And your team have graciously been doing auditing and testing of our applications and providing feedback. Um, and uh, um, and I think that we've been collaborating like that for several years. Yes, that's right. And um, you know, I think education is sort of a poster child for the way we would really like to work with uh, vendors in the uh, education sector. Um, we're currently working with uh, vendors in, uh, well, Turnitin is a vendor that we're working with now. Uh, we're looking at a, uh, a replacement for our uh, course evaluation system. Uh, so we're evaluating that uh, platform. Um, it, you know, the list goes on. Uh, any of the LTIs, um, the learning tools interoperable uh, software that runs with our 
campus's Canvas learning management system needs to be vetted. Um, so we have a campus policy and accessibility policy um, before it can be uh, really used. Uh, we do have an exception process uh, whereby, um, you know, as, as we did with education, uh, we look at some of the points of concern, some of the accessibility challenges, uh, and we try to work with the vendor uh, to establish uh, solutions uh, to those issues and a, and a timeline for that. Uh, in the interim, we work out something called an alternate access plan, uh, and that's often done in, in conversation with the vendor. Uh, so there may be a I'll give you a uh, very uh, easy example of this. Uh, and Instructure is well aware of the uh, accessibility problems with its new quiz tool. Um, the, the date for sunsetting the classic uh, quiz tool has been moved back and back and back, and then I think finally they've just lifted it now. But um, in looking at both the new quiz tool and the classic quiz tool, um, the featured comparison was, uh, I mean, the, the classic tool was more robust uh, in terms of the, the features it offered and um, really mapped to uh, mo almost all the features of the new quiz. So uh, in that case, in that instance, uh, the alternate access plan was to simply use the classic quiz tool instead of the new quiz tool. But sometimes the uh, alternate access plans are uh, a little bit more involved. But uh, to your point, this this business of um, engaging with and working with um, uh, what we call vendors, we use that term to refer to uh, companies who uh, provide educational platforms like education, um, it's always been that, that, that collaboration. Um, and my mentor, Hadi Rangan, I'll mention him by name, uh, is still a huge, that's basically all he does at the University of Washington is uh, collaborate with uh, vendors like Microsoft. Uh, and he's done a lot of work there with uh, the uh, the ribbon, making the ribbon uh, accessible. Um, and he's worked with just a number of companies. It's, it's ongoing. Um, so we enjoy doing this, but particularly if the vendor is proactive. Uh, about working on 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 these things, um, and that's one area I think where education has really shined um, in several ways. Um, not only attention to the issues, um, but sending one of your quality assurance, your senior quality assurance uh, engineer, uh, Ratna Yelgo, uh, to the IADP program for training. And that's for me. That is really where the rubber hits the road, when we can take someone, train them, send them back to that company and have that culture of accessibility, you know, work its way out in, in the product. Um, you know, right, even recent uh, surveys have shown that 60% um, or more of the companies are saying it's very difficult to find people with uh, accessibility skills even today. Uh, so I think there, there's very much a skills gap um, between higher ed and, uh, and industry. Um, 
And in some ways, the collaboration is is one way of bridging that gap, helping to bridge that gap. Um, but I think um, there's there's no substitute for formal training in the, in this area. And we were very very glad to have the opportunity to have uh, Ratna go through the program. Yeah, it's um, that's a, a just an amazing extension to our collaboration when we found out and learn more about the IADP program, um, we thought, wow, you know, this resource is right here. How did we not know about this? And uh, once we learned about it, we um, had, you know, brought it to our engineers who already have been very happy to work with you, you know, and your team and had said, oh, and then, you know, they, this is available. And, and we had said that the education will pay for anyone you know, here to attend program this program, um, and uh, and then our team just you know got super excited, and Rana was the first one to go through, and she loved it. Um, she, um, um, I think that you had, um, you probably remember that her parents came from India to come in and 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 get the certificate, you know, with her and. And you know something, you were talking about how that collaboration furthers the field, right? Because there's a skill gap. You're absolutely right. Um, ever since Rana had finished that program, her sister is now doing accessibility oh. and she's teaching everyone that she knows <laughs> about accessibility. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing because uh, I think you're absolutely 100% correct that it's hard to find people who are really skilled in this. And then the problem also is that even even when you go out to hire, you don't, you know, if you don't have the knowledge, it's also hard for you to to assess how skilled they actually are. Um, you know, they could, you know, talk a lot about a VPAT and a, you know, and 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 certain aspect of CSS, etc. You know, in in coding, you know, you know, a web page, but that. That is by no means knowing, a, you know, a lot about accessibility. Actually, like you said, one of the things that I I will I will plug IADP as is just as what an amazing program is that on one hand there's a lot of technical pieces in it, right? So Ratna was able to bring back so much knowledge and know-hows and you know like tricks and and ways to solve certain problems, right? But it's not about those definitive way of solving problems. It's about how you change your entire mindset in designing something, right? And 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 this is where I find that if you go in and take a course or read a book about here are the you know or even like read the specification in W3C. Not that it's not it's bad. It's just that they are responsible for telling you. He, here are the different ways that the browser is going to interact with a screen reader, for example. But they don't go into the depth of how to develop empathy, right? Or how do you translate right. empathy into um, something, uh, uh, interactions that you can use to to work with, you know, work with actual real users. Um, That's right. One of the one of the exercises we do in the program that I think is especially speaks to what you're saying is uh, functional accessibility testing. Uh, and in order to do that, you need to the students, the learners, uh, and hopefully the designers for the platforms um, go through each and every step 
of what users would be doing to accomplish specific tasks. Um, and then how easy is it for users to, to do that? How many steps does it take them to navigate from point A to, to this part of the, the, the platform? Um, and what are the uh, roadblocks uh, along the way? So that, that kind of thing, I'll give you an example. And this is years ago, and I'm not going to mention specific names, but um, it, a web conferencing system that was technically accessible. You could navigate by keyboard alone using the tab key, for example, or shift tab to go in reverse. Um, but the functional accessibility of it was overlooked. Um, in, a, in, a, in a web conferencing situation where you need to be very spontaneous and maybe move from audio to text to chat to maybe screen sharing, um, how many uh, tabs does it take you to get from one of those mod modules or modes uh, in that platform to another? And in this case, it was something crazy like 16 tabs to get from, you know, the regular uh, whiteboard area to the text chat area. So, it, you know, technically accessible, but functionally accessible, no. So, it's, it's very important to keep, uh, keep that in mind. And accessible design really is is more about specific um, specific user needs. So uh, I'm thinking way back historically to something like the uh, Blackboard's Accessible Gradebook, for instance, which was really very uh, targeting uh, blind users. Uh, but then again, you know, in terms of uh, all other users. Uh, they may not be impacted by uh, that accessible design. Um, accessible, rich internet applications really speaks uh, largely to uh, screen readers. Um, so uh, that's very specific. Uh, universal design itself is more uh, encompassing, perhaps maybe a, a more holistic way of, of looking at design that includes that functional uh, element which is so so important and and it seems like that screen readers is one of those um you know areas that have probably had been given the most amount of attention in terms of you know in the digital part of um you know the accessibility now there are there are a lot of other invisible disabilities that's you know that um it certainly feels to me that we're just scratching the surface on um Right. Um, I, I, for example, I again have, you know, I think having personal experiences really give, makes you think a little bit differently. Um, I have um, uh, more than one children who have um, ADHD and other types of, you know, uh, learning disabilities. And, um, and for them, you know, just the idea of, you know, you know, for me, for me, the idea of, you know, looking at something and then typing in something is different from them looking at something and then having thought about five other things and then come back and try to remember where they were. So it's not like they're not cognitively incapable of doing so, but the amount of distractions that happens when they are using an app or using a, using a, using a tool is, 
dramatically different. And so for them, you know, if something wasn't labeled, for example, when you come back, you know, even from a 10 second distraction somewhere else, um, you, they already got lost. Um, and I find, you know, these types of, um, uh, these types of behaviors are still just in fairly early phases of, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with, how we deal with all of them. That's very true. Um, and this is also an area where I think universal design for learning comes into play, but, but certainly with the, uh, the complexity of the interface, right? Uh, whatever platform we're talking about, right? And, um, you know, uh, efforts to toward the minimal, but without sacrificing the functionality of that. I think very important to think about that um, aspect of interface design. From a UDL perspective, and even from an instructional design perspective, we talk about cognitive load, right? Um, a great example of this would be the syllabus, right? Which has just over the years snowballed and snowballed. It's it's become a legal document. I've seen some syllabuses as long as 18 pages long. Um, and, you know, this is a, in the context of universal design for learning, this is a threat <laughs> for some students. Yes. It's a, you know, the, the, the threat to, it poses is the cognitive load of trying to take all of that in without even saying anything about how it might be structured. So, um, you know, one of the things that we would be doing with faculty, for example, would be maybe helping them to uh, think about ways that they could modularize their syllabus. Um, there are certain, and think about the functionality of it too, because the schedule in a course syllabus is something you know a student is going to return to uh, time and time again. What am I doing this week? So modularize that component of it so that they have direct access to it um, or policies, right, but which have grown increasingly over the years, maybe modularize that portion of it, but make it easy to get to these different areas. So maybe a, a landing page where they can easily access those other modules that, that we're talking about. Another thing that, um, that we're starting to think about a lot in the context of universal design for learning is um, the visual design, right, and how important that is. Uh, so, uh, and just the different types of learners, neurodiversity. Um, they, uh, again, going back to that idea of the syllabus, um, you know, what, what would it be like for students to have, for instance, a visual uh, diagram of the course, right? What would that look like visually? Um, and uh, those kinds of tools, even the iconography that you use in a course uh, to, to help convey the continuities or different sections, recognition, uh, all of that is, is, is very important. Um, we know that um, learners learn more uh, when they are exposed to uh, multiple modes of representation, right? So not only reading about something, but... Um, seeing it in action, or even after that, uh, applying it immediately, practicing it. Um, that's a pattern that I often uh, follow where I can in some of my courses is to write about it, show it, 
and do it. So with all of those modes of interacting with the content, um, I think the learning is increased. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, you had talked about the various collaborations, you know, with different, you know, universities and, you know, people that have gotten to different, you know, you know, places from, from, from your institution. Um, we shouldn't forget that we also got to, to work with Katie Lester from University of Alaska in Anchorage, who is a student. Um, she actually just graduated. She just graduated. Oh, and she nice. um, is also an education scholar. Uh, we just had her on, uh, actually her episode just aired, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, and uh, she also talks very fondly about the IEDP program, something that she still wants to do. Uh, but what we got to be able to do much like your experience when you said that you, when you first, you know, were working with a colleague who is blind and, you know, you just started talking about how this was going to work. And I think that Katie was, is another, you know, one of, you know, just what, what a great example. She was studying social work um, and is attending the University of Alaska Anchorage and um, she's uh, blind and, um, as part of her coursework, she's building a portfolio in education. And uh, I think she actually was one that, um, you know, along with your help uh, and your team's help, really hammered home the difference between functional usability and just being VPAT compliant. Um, and, uh, you know, when we were able to have her show us exactly how she what steps she takes to go and upload a file, what steps she takes to, to add a new module, or make a change to the color of something, et cetera. Um, it, it really, you know, it provided us, provided us with so many insights and, and there were so many low hanging fruits, to be honest, that we were feeling so dumb for not having done certain things. Um, because it's not, it doesn't even take longer. We just didn't know. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.